So we return now to our study of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, where we come again to one of the most significant figures. He doesn't appear for a lengthy period in the New Testament, but certainly one of the most significant periods, or one of the most significant individuals in the New Testament, and that is John the Baptist. So if you have your Bibles, and if you're new to this Bible study, I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, but you can use whatever translation you like. We're actually going to take a look briefly at the NIV Version, so if some of you are reading from the New International Version today, that will actually prove helpful. But I'm reading from the English Standard Version. We're going to go ahead and read chapter 11, verses 1 through 19 to begin with. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John... And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him. A glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. One of the things that all four of the Gospels reveal to us about Jesus' public ministry, his three-year ministry, is that it started off with a bang, which is to say that Jesus' ministry initially started off with a great deal of enthusiasm on the part of the people. All four of the Gospels bear witness to this. There was great excitement about the things that Jesus was doing. Of course, we know Jesus was a great miracle worker. Wherever he went, he performed great miracles. People who were sick or afflicted with an illness or demon-possessed were made whole. And there was a great deal of excitement about that. Furthermore, Jesus was a very enthralling teacher. You know, sometimes when we just read the text of the Sermon on the Mount, it may not seem so enthralling, but the images that Jesus used oftentimes were such that they captured people's imagination. 
He talked, for instance, of camels creeping through the eyes of a needle. And I suspect that when Jesus delivered his sermons or his addresses, he did it in a way that really was very engaging. And so all four of the Gospels tell us that initially huge crowds followed Jesus. We know that in the case of Galilee, sometimes crowds in excess of 5,000 people followed Jesus wherever he went. But those same Gospels also bear witness to the fact that that initial excitement, that initial ardor eventually began to cool. The people eventually became indifferent, and as time went by, there was even open hostility against Jesus, an open hostility that would lead ultimately to his death on Calvary. Now, as I said, all four of the Gospels bear witness to this, but they do it in a slightly different way. That is to say, all four of the Gospels show us that there were a number of contributing factors that led to this cooling and to this eventual hostility toward Jesus. Luke's gospel in the fourth chapter, the very beginning of that gospel, indicates that this hostility began to grow almost from the very beginning. In other words, it wasn't something that happened over the course of several years that led to Jesus being rejected. Uh, They suggest, or Luke suggests to us, that this hostility actually began at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, With the teaching in Nazareth, Uh, those of you who have been to the Holy Land, you've actually been to the site of this particular synagogue where Jesus went in. Nazareth, of course, was the town where he grew up. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was a Nazarene. That's where he was from. And when Jesus was in Nazareth, we're told that on one occasion he was sitting in the synagogue and the leader of the synagogue, the synagogue ruler, whoever it was, handed Jesus a copy of the scroll. It was his opportunity to read the lesson that day. And he opened up the scripture to the prophet Isaiah and he read a passage about the coming Messiah. And when he had finished reading that particular passage, he rolled it back up, handed it to the attendant, and then the eyes of all in the synagogue, we're told, were fixed on him. And Jesus said to them, in your hearing today, This scripture about the coming Messiah has been fulfilled. And we're told that the Jewish religious leaders took such offense at that, of the claim that Jesus was making to be the Messiah, that they actually decided to take him to the brow of a hill and throw him off and kill him for his blasphemy. And we're told that Jesus managed to slip through their fingers and escape their grasp because his time had not yet come. But Luke indicates that from the very beginning there were some things that Jesus was saying that was really offensive to the Jewish religious leaders and to the way that they understood the Scriptures. Here in Matthew's Gospel, we see that the hostility begins with Jesus claiming to forgive sins. We had the account of the man who was lowered through the roof, the paralytic. You remember that story? Comes through the roof, the paralytic, and Jesus turns to the man and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees begin to murmur and they say, who is this man that he claims to forgive sins? For only God can forgive sins. Matthew indicates it was Jesus' claim to be able to do what only God could do that caused the people to begin to turn against him. All four of the Gospels bear witness to the fact that Jesus was working on the Sabbath. He was doing good deeds on the Sabbath, healing people. And that offended the people. That is particularly true in the Gospel of John where we're told Jesus actually began his ministry in the south. But as a consequence of healing a lame man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day, there was such hostility that he was forced to flee 
to Galilee where he spent the greater part of his ministry. So all four of the Gospels make it very clear that the fact that Jesus did not confine himself to a strict observance of the Sabbath in the way that the Jewish religious leaders understood it that led to his being opposed. We got a great example of this, though, really, of what I think was really brewing in the hearts of the people and the Jewish religious leaders that caused them to turn against Jesus in John's gospel. If you keep your finger there in Matthew and turn to John chapter 6, you'll see what I mean. John chapter 6 is the account of the bread of life discourse. Um, You know the story. Uh, Jesus had performed a great miracle. He had fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two small fish. Incidentally, that is the only one of Jesus' miracles that he performed that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Somebody might say, well, what about the resurrection? The resurrection was not Jesus' miracle. Jesus was dead. It was God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. But of Jesus' own particular miracles and signs, this is the only one that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, which tells us that it made a deep impression upon the people and upon all four of the Gospel writers. And it's not hard to understand why. This was an agrarian culture in the first century. Uh, People lived off the land, and food was often scarce. Uh, They didn't have a Harris Teeter in the first century. There there was no Publix that you could go and buy your groceries. That was one of the things that struck me. Uh, Even as the hurricane was coming in, on the day before the storm struck last week, I went down to the Harris Teeter, and they were still open. That was not the case in the first century. Food was scarce. And here was Jesus. He took two small fish, five loaves of bread, and by his power, he somehow multiplied that to feed 5,000 people. And not only feed 5,000 people, but we're told there was an abundance of leftovers. And that deeply impressed the people. Well, John's gospel tells us what happened After that, we're told that Jesus crossed to the other side of the lake, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to get some rest from the crowds. But the people were so enthralled that they did what? They chased him to the other side, and they intercepted him on the opposite bank. And when Jesus saw them, what did he say? He said, I tell you the truth, you are seeking me. Why? Because of the miracles, that's right. Because of the signs and the wonders. You ought to be listening to the Word, but you're more concerned with the miraculous. You're seeking me. Why? Because you want to be fed. You want to be satisfied physically. But he says, I have brought you another kind of food, a different kind of food that you know not of. So chapter 6, let's look at verses 60 and following. Jesus says, "Um, I am... The true bread which has come down from heaven, whoever eats of this bread will never hunger. Whoever feeds on me will never thirst again. And verse 60 said, when many of his disciples heard this, heard what? Heard Jesus saying, I know that you're hungry. I know that you're thirsty. I know that your souls are craving some sort of sustenance. But I'm here to tell you there's only one thing that can satisfy you deeply. Go ahead and eat this bread that I've supplied for you. Go ahead and drink and be merry, but sooner or later, what's going to happen? You're going to be longing for more. He said, I have come that you may be satisfied for eternity. I am the answer to all of your problems. And verse 60 said, when many of his disciples heard it. Notice it says disciples. That is to say people who initially were following him. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. 
Who can listen to it? The word here for hard is a very interesting word. It's the Greek word skleros. It's from which we get the medical term scleroderma, a hardening of the skin. That's what they were saying. This is a hard saying. But when they say hard, they don't mean hard to understand. They mean this is a hard saying for us to accept. We don't like it that this man is claiming that he has something that we need. Who can listen to this? And you look at verse 66. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. You know, I think that's the reason why many people still turn away from Jesus Christ. They turn away because Jesus makes a hard demand on their lives. I want you to understand, being a Christian is no easy thing. We're going to talk about this in the sermon this Sunday for Rally Sunday. There are those who tend to think that Christianity is some sort of recreational activity. It's an aspect of your life. It's the sort of thing that you do on the weekend, one day a week, provided that Carolina and Clemson aren't playing. (laughs) But Jesus makes it very clear that is not the case. To be a follower of Jesus Christ requires everything that we have, and many people find that to be hard. That's a hard saying. And the consequence is what? Well, the consequence is that many people turn back and they follow him no more. Well, that was the issue here in the Gospels. That initial excitement eventually began to cool and people began to turn away from Jesus. Some began to turn against Jesus. The really pressing issue, and it's been the pressing issue all along in the Gospel of Matthew, if you turn back now to Matthew, the really pressing issue here in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus claimed to be the king. We said that's really what this Gospel of Matthew is all about. Matthew is declaring that the King has come. What did John the Baptist proclaim at the very beginning of this Gospel? Repent. Why? Because the Kingdom of God has arrived. Why had the Kingdom of God arrived? Because the King had arrived. Jesus was the King. And we talked about this. Kings in the first century, my friends, were not constitutional monarchs. This is not like the Queen of England who has a great deal of you know, pageantry associated with her, but no real power. Kings in the ancient world ruled by divine right. Nobody like King John had signed off any of their rights to nobles. Kings were absolute rulers in those days. And so when they said the kingdom of God had arrived, they were saying the king of kings, the Lord of lords, had arrived on the scene and he was making a claim upon their lives. And the pressing issue here, the reason why people were turning against Jesus was, was Jesus really who he claimed to be? Was he really the king? Because if he was the king, then he had every right to make a complete demand upon the lives of the people. So was he the king? Well, what we see in this section that we have before us today, here in Matthew chapter 11, is that there were varying responses to that question. Bearing responses on the part of various people as to whether or not Jesus was, in fact, the King, the Sovereign, the Lord. And we see three of those here before us today. We have the example of John the Baptist in the first few verses of chapter 11. 
That was one response that was given. In the case of John the Baptist, it was a question of doubt. He was doubting at this point whether or not Jesus really was the king. A few verses later, we have the response of the masses, that is to say the response of the people, the crowds. And their response to the question, is Jesus the king, was a response of indifference, or a more proper term for it biblically would be unbelief. They didn't believe it. They were enthralled by the miracles, but they didn't believe it. And the third response and answer to that question, is Jesus the king, was the response of the Jewish religious leaders, namely the scribes and the Pharisees, and their response was one of intense opposition. Opposition that would lead to open hostility and to murder. Now, this section of Matthew's Gospel marks a turning point in Jesus' teaching. One of the things that you will notice as a result of this growing hostility is that up to this point in the Gospel narrative, Jesus has been teaching the crowds as a whole. He's been teaching anyone who will come to Him and listen. What we're going to see is that from this point on, Jesus is going to spend less and less time with the crowds, and He's going to be doing most of His intense teaching and preaching with the disciples alone. And when He does teach the crowds, He does it in a different way than He's done it up to this point. No longer are we going to see Him giving addresses like the Sermon on the Mount. From here on out, Jesus is going to be speaking in parables. So this is the first time in Matthew's Gospel that we're going to see parables being introduced. We're already 11 chapters into this Gospel and there's not been one parable. And the parables come in Matthew as a consequence of what? The hostility that he experiences from the people. So there is a shift, you see, in Jesus' approach to dealing with the crowds as a consequence of the fact that they are turning against him. So these are the various responses that we see to Jesus and this claim to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now let's take a look at the first one, the response of John the Baptist, because this is, in many respects, the most significant since John was the forerunner of the Christ and because John, at the very beginning of this gospel, had come to proclaim the arrival of Jesus. We're told that John had doubts about Jesus. And look again at verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, if you think about it, that's rather extraordinary because already we have seen that when Jesus appeared in the Judean wilderness where John had been baptizing and preaching a message of repentance, what had John done when he saw Jesus? He had pointed to Jesus and he said to the crowds, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, we're told that even some of John's disciples left him and began to follow after Jesus. Peter, for example, had been one of John's disciples, and he is now following after Jesus because John had pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. Now you get to chapter 11, and John is sending messengers to Jesus asking, are you really the one or not? Well, what's going on there? Well, it's clear what's going on here. John is having a crisis of doubt. He is dealing with, with questions. 
Now, that shocks us because we think to ourselves, my, my goodness, Jesus is going to go on to say, of all the men ever born of women, there was never one greater than John the Baptist. And you say, well, then, John the Baptist, the greatest of all the people who've ever lived, next to Jesus himself, and John was filled with doubt? That, that sounds incongruous to us, doesn't it? It doesn't seem to make much sense. Well, we'll get to this in a later study, but one of the things I want you to understand from the outset is that doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. I want you to understand that doubt is part of what it means to be a human. If there's anybody in this room who tells you that they have never doubted, they're lying to you. Because at one point or another, we have all doubted some aspect of the gospel message. We've all struggled with this. And part of that is because, as the Apostle Paul says, you and I see through a glass dimly. We don't see the end from the beginning. We don't understand all things. That's one of the reasons we walk by faith and not by sight. Oz Guinness wrote a book some years ago on doubt. And the book was entitled... Between two minds. And that's really what it means to doubt. It doesn't mean that you don't believe. It simply means that on the one hand you're inclined to believe, but on the other hand you're inclined not to believe, and you're somehow stuck there in the middle. And if you think about it, that is exactly where John the Baptist was. He, he sent messengers to Jesus saying, Are you the one? Or aren't you the one? I, I, I'm caught somehow here in the middle, between two minds. That's what doubt is. And we've all been there at one point or another. C.S. Lewis put it well. He said that he doesn't think that anyone could truly say they ever believed until they had first doubted. Until they had dealt with the questions. Well, John the Baptist was a great man, but we mustn't forget that all of the great men of the Bible, all the great women of the Bible had their moments of weakness. Abraham had his moments of weakness. Moses had his moments of weakness. David had his moments of weakness. And we should not be surprised that John the Baptist had moments of weakness as well. Now you say, well, why was it that John doubted? What was it that had shifted from the beginning of this gospel to the 11th chapter that made John wonder whether or not Jesus really was who he had declared him to be? Let me suggest to you three things. First of all, John was in prison. Josephus tells us that he was in prison about five miles east of the Dead Sea in the Judean wilderness. He had been put in prison by order of King Herod because he had been speaking against Herod and Herod's paramount Herodias. Uh, we're told that John the Baptist was a lot like Elijah, and in this respect he was. You remember that Elijah spoke against the evil king Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Well, that's exactly what John the Baptist had done. He had spoken out against King Herod and King Herod's wife, Herodias, which was his brother's wife. And he had condemned that sort of thing. And Herod didn't like that. Herodias liked it even less. And the result was that John found himself imprisoned in this terrible place. Now, if you've ever been to the Judean wilderness, uh, the actual place was called Machaerus. Uh, it is now known today as Kerbet Machaer. If you've ever been down there in the Judean wilderness, and some of you who have been, you've been to the Holy Land, that's when we crossed over into Jordan, 
That is a barren, desolate, and miserable place. Now, if you've been up there to Galilee, Galilee is magnificent, and it's lush, and it's green, and they've made the desert bloom. But you go down to the south, just a few miles south of Jerusalem, and it is a very different picture. I'm telling you, there's nothing out there but rocks and scorpions. It's a pretty miserable place. And there was no air conditioning in the first century. So these, this poor man is locked away in this place. He's in prison. Now, just put yourself in John's place for a moment. He had been out there courageously preaching the message that the Messiah had come. He had been doing what God had laid upon his heart, calling people to repentance, and the payment for that was what? Imprisonment. You've heard the expression, no good deed goes unpunished. Well, that was certainly the case with John the Baptist. Have you ever done something good and the payment that you get for it is either persecution or indifference or no appreciation at all? Have you ever been there? Let me tell you something, that can be very discouraging. Anybody that's ever had children understands this very well. <laughs> Somebody once said about children, children were God's revenge on a sinful humanity. Why? Because God created us in His image, and we pretended as though He didn't exist. That's exactly what children are. Children are made in our image, and they pretend we don't exist. <laughs> That's a hard thing, isn't it? To do for another person and find that you're not appreciated, not even acknowledged. That's how John must have been feeling. And we mustn't forget that even though he was a great man and he was a saint, there's no doubt about the fact that he was still flesh and blood. And to be locked away in that miserable place after all that he had done must have been very discouraging indeed. If you've ever been there, this should be an encouragement to you to know that you're not alone. John was there too. Second thing about John the Baptist that I think probably filled him with discouragement and doubt as to who Jesus was, was the fact that he was emotionally drained. John had been on the front line for some time. And any of you who have ever served in the military in a front line position, you know how tense, stressful, and draining that can be. In fact, oftentimes it's the case that if you don't get somebody off of the front lines, they can crack. Well, John had been on the front line. I said earlier that he's oftentimes compared to Elijah. Well, just think about Elijah for a moment. Do you remember that Elijah stood against King Ahab and King, Queen Jezebel and their wickedness? And there was that great contest on Mount Carmel, do you remember, between the gods, the pagan gods of Baal and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there was that great contest, and you know that God brought down fire and consumed the sacrifice. It was a great victory, and all the priests of Baal were slaughtered. And it was a great day for Elijah. But if you read just a few chapters later, where is Elijah? Not enjoying the blessing of success, but hiding out in the wilderness in a cave with his hand between his knees, his head between his knees, fearful for his life because Jezebel is after him. And he's drained. He's emotionally drained. He who had seen God call down fire and consume the sacrifice is now out there whining to himself, I'm the only one left. He was drained. Well, let me tell you something. John the Baptist must have been emotionally, physically, spiritually drained because he was contending for the sake of the kingdom. And not everybody liked the message. I mean, who likes to be told that they're a brood of vipers? 
How, how well do you think that would play in St. Philip's if I stood up there on Sunday and looked out at the congregation and said, you people are nothing but a brood of vipers? <laughs> I don't imagine that it would play very well. I don't imagine I would probably be here the next Sunday. <laughs> but that's exactly what John did to the Pharisees when they came out. He said, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Now, it is true, all of Judea went out to be baptized by John, but there were some who didn't like what he had to say, and no doubt many who rejected him and opposed him, and that is draining. And it's not just opposition that is draining. Sometimes victories are draining. It's just the way it is. You can fight a great victory and win. I've oftentimes found it to be the case that after I've preached a particular sermon, which people found to be particularly helpful or moving, the next day I find myself completely dry like a, a husk that has been sucked dry, and you can't understand why, except that you are engaging in spiritual warfare. Isn't that what Paul says? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? The spiritual forces of wickedness in the high places. Well, let me tell you something. Fighting a battle is exhausting. And it was for John the Baptist. So John the Baptist must have been discouraged as a result of those two things. But I think there was something else with John the Baptist, the real thing. I still don't think we've gotten to the heart of what was going on with John the Baptist. I think the real thing for John the Baptist was that he began to realize that Jesus wasn't meeting expectations. I think that was the real problem for John. He was drained. He was discouraged. He was locked away. And it's hard when you're a, a false, forceful person, when you've been in the action, to suddenly be pulled out of the action. Have you ever been an active person all of a sudden you're afflicted with a, a terrible illness that takes you out of the action for a while? That can be very discouraging. John had all of that. But I think the real issue for John was that Jesus wasn't meeting expectations. And when I say meeting expectations, I'm not talking about John's personal expectations. I think when John looked at the ministry of Jesus at this point, Jesus didn't seem to be meeting the biblical expectation. What do I mean by Jesus wasn't meeting the biblical expectation? Well, the expectation that the Jews had and the Old Testament had proclaimed was that when the Messiah came, there would be what? Justice. That's what the Messiah was going to bring. He was going to bring justice. He was going to bring judgment. Isn't that what John the Baptist had proclaimed at the beginning? He said, repent. For the kingdom of God is hand. I tell you the truth, I baptize you with water, but there is one who is coming after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. His winnowing fork is in his hand. To clear the threshing floor. To separate the wheat from the chaff. Judgment is coming. Justice, long hoped for justice is coming. That's what John had proclaimed. And at this point, he wasn't seeing it. Where was the justice in him being locked away and Jesus is out there, the one who is supposed to be the Messiah, and he's not locked away? Where's the justice? See, that's what he was expecting. And it wasn't there. It wasn't there as far as he could tell. The Jews tell a story about a Christian businessman who was witnessing to a Jewish rabbi in New York City one day in the rabbi's office. 
And at one point, the Jewish rabbi got up from his desk and he walked to the window and he looked out on the streets of New York with all of its suffering, all of its misery, all of its injustice, all of its pain, all of its crime. And shaking his head, he turned away and went back to his desk saying, no, no, no. When Messiah comes, there will be justice. See, that's what we expect, isn't it? That God is one day going to set this broken and fallen world right. How many of you long for justice? Don't you want to see justice in the world? Don't you see a lot of injustice and cruelty? Don't you want to see that one day that's going to be set right? Well, John did. That's what he expected the Messiah to bring. And unfortunately, it did not happen. It's interesting. When Jesus read that passage from the prophet Isaiah, remember at the synagogue in Nazareth, it talked about the things the Messiah would do. And Jesus gives a response to John the Baptist about that. But what we're going to see is that while Jesus gave a response to it, that response did not have justice in it. How did Jesus respond to John the Baptist? Well, let's take a look. Verse 4 is Jesus' response. And he said, Go and tell John what you hear and see. Tell him the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That is a direct echo of the passage from Isaiah. That was the exact passage that Jesus had read that day in the synagogue. Here's what's interesting. That passage goes on to say that the Messiah would bring justice and judgment upon the world. When Jesus read that passage that day, he stopped short of the judgment part. And that's what John was wrestling with. One of the things that I find remarkable about Jesus' response to John the Baptist is that it was a gracious response. I said that doubt and unbelief are not the same thing. Just because somebody is doubting does not mean that they don't believe. As a matter of fact, doubt is something you can only experience from a point of belief. You ever thought about that? You can never truly doubt unless you've already believed. That's what doubt is. It's questioning what you've already accepted. It's not the same thing, as I said, as willful refusal to believe. So John had already believed that Jesus was the Christ. Now he's torn between two minds. Now he's questioning, and he's questioning for all the reasons that we've already said. What is so amazing is that Jesus doesn't condemn him for his doubt. Instead, Jesus responds in a gracious, merciful, compassionate, and understanding way. What does Jesus do? Jesus tells John to go back to the Word. Let me tell you something. There's nothing wrong with doubt, but doubt is never a stopping place. If you've got doubts about Jesus Christ, if you've got doubts about the Christian gospel, if you've got doubt about the life as a Christian, that's okay. But you cannot wallow in your doubt. 
Doubt is simply a starting point. It is a place to motivate yourself to dig deeper and to understand. And that is exactly what Jesus does with John. He says, all right, John, I understand that you have doubts. I understand that you have concerns. I understand that there are questions in your minds. But that being the case, let me suggest you go back and read through the scriptures again. What does the scripture say is going to happen when the Messiah arrives? If John had gone back to that passage from Isaiah, one of the things they would have seen was that when the Messiah came, there was going to be sight given to the blind. The lame would walk, lepers would be cleansed, the deaf would hear, the dead would be raised up, and the poor would have good news preached to them. Those things have already happened at this point in the Gospel of Matthew. Am I not coming through? Oh, it fell off. That's why. Sorry. You know, you get a little animated up here, and what happens is, you know, you sort of just begin to fall apart sooner or later. So, it's exhausting, this work, you know. I mean, you find yourself thrown into prison, that sort of thing. So, what we see is that Jesus says to John, go back to the Scriptures and see what's happening and compare it to what I am doing. And that's exactly what John was told to do. And, of course, that is what the Messiah was doing. But what about that judgment part? How do we answer that? Why is it that Jesus leaves off the judgment part? Well, the answer to that is really very simple. It's because at this point in his ministry, judgment was not a part of it. It didn't mean that judgment wasn't going to come. It just meant that at this point, it hadn't come. And it was a good thing for the people that it hadn't. In other words, we might describe what Jesus did at the beginning of his ministry as a period of grace, as a period of mercy, as a period of redemption. Judgment would come, but right now there was grace, mercy, and redemption. You know, the same is true for you and for me. If you're still alive today, you are living under God's grace. Sooner or later, however, we're all going to face judgment. That's what the New Testament says. It is appointed man once to die, and then there's what? Judgment. If you're still alive, you've got grace. You better be thankful for the grace that you've got. Because sooner or later, God will judge. We say it every Sunday in the words of the Creed, and He will come again to do what? Judge the quick and the dead. You're still among the quick. So this is a time of grace. That's what Jesus was saying. It's not that judgment isn't coming. It's not that I'm ignoring the judgment. I will bring judgment upon the earth. But right now is the day of grace. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to turn and to be saved. Well, that's what we're hoping for, and that's exactly what Jesus was saying. So Jesus does not condemn John for his doubt. He teaches him about the Messiah and what the Messiah had come to do. And then he does a third thing. Having sent the disciples off to John the Baptist, he then turns to the crowds and he says a word about John. He praises John. John was a man filled with doubt, but he was nevertheless an extraordinary man. Look at verse 7. And as the disciples went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? That is to say, a weak man? No. Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? No. What did you go out to see? 
These are rhetorical questions. You went out to see a prophet, didn't you? The people acknowledged that John was a prophet. He said, that's why you all went out, because you knew a prophet was in your midst. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. I tell you the truth, this is the messenger who has gone before the face of the Messiah. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, what Jesus was saying was, yes, your initial instinct, he's speaking to the crowds, was correct. John was a prophet, and that's what you went out to see. But he was more than a prophet. He was the last of the great prophets. He was the greatest of the prophets. Why? Because he was the one who had announced the coming of the Messiah. Now, what is Jesus really saying there? He's not only talking about John the Baptist, he's talking about himself, isn't he? John the Baptist was the prophet who proclaimed the Messiah, and who did John proclaim? Me. I'm that lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So he said, yes, John is an extraordinary man. Of all the men born of women, no one's greater than John the Baptist. But then he goes on to say this, and this is a most astounding thing. He said, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. John was a great prophet. No one born of women was greater than John the Baptist. And yet, he says, the least in the kingdom of heaven. How many of you out there would claim to be a Christian today? A follower of Jesus Christ. What he is saying is that you are greater than John the Baptist. And they say, well, how can that be? The answer is really quite simple. You and I are greater than John the Baptist because we have the opportunity to more effectively bear witness to the Messiah than he did. See, John lived on the far side of the cross of Jesus Christ. He foretold what Jesus was going to do, but he never actually had the privilege of seeing it. He never had the privilege of actually understanding how Jesus would be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. He lived on the far side of the cross. You and I live what? On the near side of the cross. We have seen how God, in the person of Jesus Christ, mounted the arms of the cross and gave Himself as a ransom for many that whosoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. We understand more about Jesus' life, ministry, and redeeming work upon the cross than John the Baptist did. And with that in mind, you and I can more effectively witness to Jesus Christ than even John did. And that's why Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. And the only question is, <laughs> are we fulfilling that calling? Now, John the Baptist did it, my friends. Even with the limited knowledge that he had, he did it. He did it to the utmost, to the point where he was emotionally, physically, spiritually drained and locked away in prison. You and I have greater opportunities and greater knowledge. Are we doing it? See, that's our calling as Christian people. That's our vocation. If you are not bearing witness to Jesus Christ, you are really not being a Christian. That's our calling as believers. And Jesus said that's what made John the Baptist great. Even with what limited knowledge he had, 
He proclaimed the message from the rooftops. Are we doing the same? Professor D.A. Carson, who is a great commentator on this gospel, put it well. He said, so often Christians want to establish their greatness with reference to their work, their giving, their intelligence, their preaching, their gifts, their courage, their discernment. But Jesus unhesitatingly affirmed that even the least believer is greater than John the Baptist simply because of his or her ability living on this side of the coming of Jesus the Messiah to point him out with greater clarity and understanding than all his forerunners ever could. If we really believe this truth, it will dissipate all cheap vying for position and force us to recognize that our significance, our only significance, lies in our witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, before we move on to the second response to Jesus claiming to be the king. That's John the Baptist's response, doubt, and that's how Jesus deals with him. Before we move on to the crowds and their response and Jesus' reaction to them, we need to take a look at just a, a tricky text here, one that has puzzled people from time to time. Look at verse 12. Jesus goes on to say, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept that he is Elijah who is to come, he who has ears, let him hear. What does it mean when Jesus says that from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force? I say this is a tricky text because the Greek can be translated two different ways. The Greek verb can actually be translated as we have it here in Matthew chapter 11 in the English Standard Version to suggest that as long as the kingdom of God is advanced, it has been under assault. It has increased, but there has been violence. Isn't that what the text says? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And what? The violent take it by force. Well, that's one interpretation. But what's interesting is that there is another way to read the text. Anybody out there got the NIV version of it? The New International Version? Anybody reading from that? If you're reading from the New International Version, you will see that what the New International Version says is this. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. And forceful men lay hold of it. In other words, one version suggests that as the kingdom of God has advanced, it's been attacked, it's been under violence, and violent men have tried to seize it. But another translation of the same Greek verb suggests that what is actually happening is that the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing. It's moving forward with power and dominion. And forceful men are leading it. Now, which interpretation is correct? Well, I suppose we will never know. Uh, someday when we get to heaven, this is one of the questions I'm going to ask Matthew. What in the world did you mean? <laughs> or more correctly, what in the world did Jesus mean? Whichever interpretation is correct, and every commentator has his own opinion, 
What I think we can say is that both interpretations are true. That is to say, from the moment that it started, the kingdom of God has suffered violence. There have been people who have been opposed to the Christian message. Let's just face it. This first audience would have understood that very well. They lived in the age of the Roman Empire, and there was a whole succession of Roman emperors that were opposed to the Christian gospel. There were persecutions under the reign of Nero and Domitian, and the last great systematic persecution was under the reign of Diocletian. And all through the centuries, right down to the present day, there have been people who have tried, violent men who have tried to attack the Christian gospel, attack the Christian church, and dismantle it. You may not realize this. I've said it before, but it's very important that you understand. When we think of the persecutions in the history of the church, we think of the persecutions in the Roman days, don't we? We think of those Christians being dragged into the Colosseum and thrown to the lions or thrown to the gladiators or whatever it may be. That's what we think of when we think of persecution, isn't it? When you picture in your mind's eye Christians being persecuted, what do you think of? You think of them being thrown to the lions or the wild animals or being crucified and lining the streets into Rome. But are you aware of the fact that more Christians died for their faith, became martyrs in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined? Now, how many of you, I think there might be one exception to this in the room today, how many of you grew up in the 20th century? Let's see a show of hands. I mean, it's all right. You, you can keep your hand down because I know you weren't born in the 20th century necessarily, or the latter part of it. But the bulk of us grew up in the 20th century. Do you imagine people being martyred in the 20th century? Because they were more Christians martyred for their faith in the 20th century than in all previous centuries, the 19th centuries before, combined. So what Jesus said is true. From the moment that the kingdom of God and the good news of the king was pronounced to the present day, the church, the message, the kingdom has been under assault it has suffered violence, and violent people have tried to take hold of it. That's true. But the opposite is also true. The NIV translation is also true. In spite of all of this, what has happened? The kingdom of God has, in spite of that, continued to advance, hasn't it? The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Where do, you, where, do, where do those words come from? Those are the words of Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We know that's true. And what's more forceful men, that is to say courageous men and women, have led the fight. People like John the Baptist, people like the Apostle Paul, right down to the present day, there are those who are out there on the front lines contending for the sake of the gospel. And try as they might, they cannot defeat it. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever. Hallelujah. What a wonderful message that is. So both of those interpretations are correct. This is how Edward Gibbon defined it in his Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Mind you, he wrote that in the 18th century. But here's what he had to say. He said, A candid but rational inquiry into the progress and establishment of Christianity may be considered as a very essential part of the history of the Roman Empire. 
While that great body was invaded by open violence or undermined by slow decay, he's talking about the decline of the Roman Empire here. He said, while that Roman Empire was being invaded and undermined by slow moral decay, a pure and humble religion gently insinuated itself into the minds of men. It grew up in silence and obscurity. It derived new vigor from opposition. And finally, it erected the triumphant banner of the cross on the ruins of the old capital. Isn't that amazing? The Roman Empire tried to stamp out Christianity, and within 300 years, the Christian gospel, without ever firing a shot, no violence, brought that empire to its knees and left the Romans with nothing but the empty temples of their gods. And Gibbon goes on to say this, and after a revolution of 13 or 14 centuries, that religion is still professed by the nations of Europe, the most distinguished portion of humankind in arts and learning as well as in arms. By the industry and zeal of the Europeans, it has been widely diffused to the most distant shores of Asia and Africa, and by the means of their colonies has been firmly established from Canada to Chile in a world unknown to the ancients. Is the kingdom of God advancing in spite of the violence that comes against it? Oh, yes. Here's how Will Durant put it in his epic multi-volume history of civilization. He said, there is no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians, scorned or oppressed by a succession of emperors, bearing all their trials with a fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building order while their enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword with the word, brutality with hope, and at last defeating the strongest state that history has known. Caesar and Christ had met in the arena, and Christ had won. That's what you and I are a part of. And even if you're the least in the kingdom of heaven, you have an opportunity, by the grace of God, to witness in an even greater way than John the Baptist. And for that we can say, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for John the Baptist. We thank you that he was a great witness to Jesus. But we also thank you that he was flesh and blood. He was not perfect. He had moments of weakness. And here he was, caught between two contending minds. Sometimes we are there, Lord. But while doubt is part of what it means to be human, let us not remain in our doubt. Give us the courage, as John was told to do, to go back to your word, to study it fiercely, to allow it to become part of us. Grant us the grace to read it, mark it, learn it, inwardly digest it, as the Scripture says, as the prayer book says, that we may be transformed, that we who live on the near side of those great events of Calvary might be more effective witnesses for Jesus Christ, that even though the kingdom may be assaulted, we may be part of advancing it, forceful men and women, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ until all the earth shall own him Lord. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.